Johnston Sterics, and I'm a leadership consultant. I work with boards and senior executives on high stakes issues, strategic change, and crisis. Today on Dog Barron's show, we're going to talk about accountability, blind spots that people have in cognition, and why overconfidence is going to kill your business and your M&A deal. So stay tuned. Congratulations. You are tuned into Dolph Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Show, the number one podcast for Fortune 500 executives and those who are dedicated to creating a quantum leap in leadership. Your host, Dolph Barron, is the founder of FullMontyLeadership.com. He's an executive mentor to leaders like you, a contributing writer for Entrepreneur Magazine, CEO World, and he's been featured on CNN, Fox, CBS, and many other notable sites. Dolph Barron is an international business speaker who was named by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 100 leadership speakers to hire. Now, over to Dolph Barron. Welcome, dear friends, fans, and fellow aficionados of leadership excellence. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dolph Barron's Leadership and Loyalty Tips for Executives, part of the Full Monty interview series. I'm your host, Dolph Barron, founder of Full Monty Leadership, and I'm here to assist you tapping into your deep greatness so that you can reach that next level of clarity, focus, purpose, and profit in your business, your life, and your leadership impact. Today, we're going to be taking an insider look at how courage, the courage and judgment of fortitude that helps leaders create greater value in everything that they're doing, including on M&A deals. If you're a new listener, new, new viewer, thank you for joining us. Strap yourself in. We're about to go full Monty. And remember... You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you tune into podcasts. And uh, to help us stay relevant, we always need your help. So please get yourself over to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. You can also find us on traditional radio stations across the United States, on FM and on AM, every Monday and Thursday across the U.S., like I said. You can find us on 87.9 FM in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You can find us on Roku TV, where there's over 100,000 subscribers. And we are grateful to be cited by Inc. as the number one podcast to make you a better leader. And we're also very grateful for the 2.5 to 3 million listeners for every potential listeners for every show. So we really appreciate you making us that top show. And remember, you can get us also now on Alexa and Google Home. Simply say, play Dove Barron's podcast. So thank you for sharing the show with everybody you know. Let's dive right into it. As a leader, whether you're a CEO, C-suite leader, sales leader, entrepreneur, leader in any capacity, you know that on a good day, leadership is about sharing a vision, rallying the troops around that vision, and then celebrating when you hit that, when it becomes a reality. But what happens when the stakes go up? What happens when crisis hits and your vision gets lost in the chaos? How do you make sure that you and anybody on your team don't become the cause of chaos? Well, stay tuned because you're about to find out. Our guest today is Constance Dietrichs. Now, she is known as the secret weapon. Clients rely on her for advice to grow their companies, deals, and how to deal with crisis. They go to her to find advice that they're just not going to find anybody else. And here's why. She's a former stockbroker. She learned from her clients and colleagues that making decisions is both rational and emotional. And though, though and most of us risk making poor decisions because we get blinded by certain influential factors. Fortunately, many leaders want to understand their own leadership and how to improve it. And when they do, they reach out to Constance. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Constance Dietrich. That's really fun. Thank you. Good to have you here. It's great for joining to us. After yeah. the technical chaos, it took us a while to get on. It did. Little it did. do they know. Little do they know the the, the they know that some the of the turmoil. That was being uttered about five minutes ago. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting, of course, is that you and I both have an interest in quantum physics, and you, particularly in chaos theory. And yes. getting on this episode has been the manifestation of chaos theory. It was. it was. It was, and it was resolved by an age-old method. 
turn it off and turn it back. <laughs> All else fails, unplug the bastard, slap it upside the head and come back. <laughs> exactly. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Yeah, but it's great to be with you. Thank you. Actually, let, let's let's go there. It's not part of my plan, but let's go there, which was, um, you know, I mentioned chaos theory. And yes. I'm guessing that most people won't know that about you, that you have an interest in, and a very big interest in chaos theory. Talk to I us do. about how that came about and how that ties into the work that you do. I do. Well, I um, when I was in high school, um, I was sort of frustrated about uh, studying the hard sciences like chemistry and things like that because I'm a female. And uh, when I was in high school, there were very few girls that studied hard science and advanced mathematics. Now, I'm not the, the math genius, but I've always been interested in science. And I signed up for a chemistry class, and I was so harassed by the boys that I dropped the class. Wow. I know. I know. Uh, but I maintained an interest um, in the hard sciences, and my stepfather was a uh, mathematician and so uh, and worked on rockets and missiles wow. and, and all kinds of scary defense uh, sort of stuff. And I started hanging around him and listening, and this book came out called Chaos by James Gleick, who's not a scientist but is a very good scientific writer. Right. And so I read it. And um, I was fascinated, and I started learning about Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Love yeah. Feynman stuff. Yeah. Feynman. Sure, Feynman. you're joking, Mr. Feynman. <laughs> oh yes, exactly. Uh, and so, uh, when I was a graduate student, I was reading Gleick's book on chaos. At the same time, I was taking a class in family systems theory, and I started seeing these connections and these themes and these analogies. So I wrote a paper for the class on the analogies between chaos theory and family systems. And my professor wrote one comment on the paper, which was, well, I got an A on it, but that's not the important part. The important part was the professor said, apparently we're not giving you enough to do. <laughs> if you have time to read that stuff. Uh, but I think that um, for many people, we sadly abandon these interests that we have as young people because we get channeled more and more into very uh, technical and specific areas. Um, and my area of research that I'm working on right now is actually about leadership mindset. Mm -hmm. And I believe that breadth of knowledge and curiosity is as valuable as anything else. And so I'm actually um, going back and looking into areas that I had abandoned at a younger age and exploring those. And I'm just finding that, uh, so I picked up painting, mm -hmm. and someone said to me, well, when you're painting, does it feel like you're wasting time? And I'm saying, no, because when I'm painting, I see metaphors right. that apply to my work in business. And it just gives me a richer um, experience base to draw upon. Yeah, it, it's fascinating for, for me. You know, I, Of course, you and I both know, as both as business consultants, leadership consultants, the call to have a niche is is you know very important and all the rest of it. However, the most brilliant people I know are, are actually have a great deal of depth in a wide variety of areas. Yes. And I appreciate people yes. who have a niche and I appreciate the marketing of that. And I understand the frustration of being a person who has width and depth as you do. And so... But I've never found that it's wasted, you know. So my interest in quantum physics, you know, that you and I talked about off the recording, and your interest in quantum physics is is uh, is like for me, it's it's there all the time. My background, you know, one of the one of the common areas you and I have is in the background of psychology and studying to a therapist and and family dynamics and all those kinds of things. Again, right. you and I have that in common, and yes. I see that every time I walk into a fucking boardroom. Yes. I see somebody playing dad, somebody playing mom, and somebody playing the middle child, and somebody playing the youngest child, and somebody playing the eldest child. And oh my God, like why are you why are you the ugly stepchild? <laughs> right. And somebody's the identified patient. Exactly. Right. Like... And uh, so I had a I had a CEO client one day that um, I was talking to, and his team was very fractured and. They were fighting with each other, and he looked at me and he said, "You know, some days I feel like this is kindergarten with briefcases." It's a very astute. <laughs> and he talking about his team exactly in the way you just did. Now, whether that was true or not in his case, 
okay, maybe, or maybe not. But I had to help him use different language to talk to them because I said, you know, you might be right. They might be acting like five-year-olds, but it's not going to be helpful if you say that to them. So let's get some grown-up language around that. Yeah, if you if you say to people they're acting like five-year-olds, you're actually prompting them to act like five-year-olds. You're daring them. <laughs> daring them. I dare you to act like a five-year-old. Kick sand in my face. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And we all have we all have these parts of ourselves that are uh, more immature or parts of us. For me, it's parts of myself that long to be unbridled, like the painter. You know, I haven't painted since I was a kid. Um, but letting that out is is important, not just because it gives me a break from what I do the rest of the time, which is so much brain work, mm -hmm. but because I do see connections and analogies and I can create metaphors uh, by doing that. So yeah. I, I really encourage my clients um, to to go wide, but not be shallow. So you and I have a, have a friend in common, Mark Levy, Absolutely. who we, we, we have a mutual admiration society uh, for Mark Levy. And Mark is a well-known positioning expert, and he's a magician. Yeah. Like, come on, that is so cool. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and a lot of other things about Mark that... But, but, that's a, but that's an example of understanding that anything, what I, what I find with people who I, who I really admire, people who I think of as geniuses, is that they get that no learning is lost. Yes. You know, exactly. I, I mean, I can think of, I've studied so many things just because I'm interested, just because I'm a curious human being, right. that it could be easy to say, well, that was a waste of time, but somehow something about it comes back. And sometimes all of it that comes back is just that um, I have something, some level of rapport with somebody about a subject that I don't have anything else in common with them that allows us to connect at a deeper yeah. level and it opens the door that wouldn't be there if I hadn't studied this obscure thing that I decided right. was interesting. Right. It, it enables you to make connections with so many more people and to do it quickly. So I joke sometimes that, that when I got hired by Merrill Lynch, that the moment that I knew I was hired was a conversation with the office manager. It had nothing to do with finance. I didn't have a finance background. I was a college dropout for Pete's sake. You know, I didn't walk in and say, hey, I'm a college dropout. You know, I tried to keep that to myself. <laughs> but he was talking to me about a recent vacation he and his wife had been in Europe. They had been in Paris. Now, I hadn't been out of the country at that point except to Canada and the Bahamas. I was not a well-traveled person <laughs> at this age. And he was talking about Paris and the chaotic traffic and this street. And it was the main drive. And I said, Champs-Élysées. <laughs> Bam! I was in. Right. I was in the club because we had a common friend. Now, he didn't ask me if I'd ever been to Paris. <laughs> now, I've been since, but... Uh, you know, it, but it was it was also delightful for me that I could affirm his story. And and how did I know about that? Because I took French in high school right. and because I'm a curious person. That's well, all. And yeah. I like to eat. So that, you know, if you well, like to that. eat, France is, France is a good place to be fascinated. But the, you know, here's, you know, we, we're not even diving into your stuff, really. But I think that <laughs> what we're diving into that's important in the context of leadership is I think you know, there's there's two sides of leadership. There's the technical and there's the human. Yes. And and I and for me personally, it's my judgment. Totally own it's my judgment. The technical leader is a manager. Is not a leader. Right. It's, it takes humanities to to be a real leader and understanding people. And I and it's one of the things I encourage the leaders that I work with all the time is if you don't bring up your human skills, you're going to fail as a leader. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that is the, you know, I find that a lot of leaders are saying, well, you know, I just have to focus on this. I've got to get this done. I've got this this thing, this deadline to me. I've got this vision to, to bring about. And they miss the people. And, right. you know, the thing that we just talked about there, which is finding these little common grounds, finding these yeah. little moments of rapport that allow yeah. somebody to feel like you get me. Because the thing I've said to people for, for my entire life is, tell me one thing that every human being wants. And people will go, well, you know, food and water. Yeah, okay, let's let's take those things and put them, take them for granted. What does every human being want? And they go, love? And they go, yeah, but what is love? And they go, 
romance. No, it's not. That's not. That's romance. And I say, I'm going to tell you what love is in the simplest form and how to apply it as a leader. And they go, what is it? Every human being wants to feel that somebody gets them. Yeah. And sometimes that's just saying, Chancelise. <laughs> in that moment, that yeah. person felt got and they probably never had a conversation with anybody in that office who could actually even contemplate friends. And you named the name of a street and they went, oh, my God, you're my best friend. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's what it takes. And I think that so often we miss this. Yeah. That it's the human connection, that desire yeah. to feel like somebody actually gets us is so vitally yeah. important. Yeah. It Well, it also shows that you're dialed in. You know, I'm dialed into this conversation. I'm not just sitting here waiting for you to be done talking so I can utter this brilliant phrase that I've been holding on to in my brain, AKA I'm distracted. Um, the look on that man's face was, uh, that was maybe the most delighted I ever saw him <laughs> because after that, it, it was a know, downhill journey from there. Really. <laughs> downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, I was, I was there for several years and, and I learned a lot again, you know, people have said to me, well, gee, don't you feel like you wasted your time doing that before you went to graduate school? And I say, are you kidding me? What an education. Sure. It was fantastic. The most important thing I learned was not to do that again. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best lesson. Yes. So yeah. you, uh, yeah, you, know, you talked about being, uh, being uh, sort of shunned for the sciences. Yeah. Um, and I think that in many ways we adapt, uh, not because it's a natural ad adaptation, but because we're forced to adapt. And sometimes that's okay. And sometimes it's a, a, a pushing away of who we are. And sometimes it's to make life easier. Yeah. Um, tell us about your last name and how it's spelt. <laughs> so my last name is, um, it's Belgian. And in Belgium, it's pronounced Dirichs. And in the United States, you can't get anyone to say that, uh, nor do I attempt to do so. It's D-I-E-R-I-C-K-X. So we say Derricks or Derricks in the U.S. Um, a lot of people say Dietrich. It is a cognate of the German name Dietrich. Right. And Belgium, as many of your listeners will know, was formed uh, by taking parts of uh, Holland and France and mashing it together. It's not an old country. And so there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of German influence there. Mm -hmm. It's actually my husband's family name. Right. Uh, so I actually changed my name to that name. <laughs> so you just were a glutton for punishment. I was a glutton for punishment. In fact, our first date came about because um, I knew him professionally, and I needed to send him something in the mail for business. And I, I looked at his name and I thought, I can't, that's, that, that can't be right. There's something wrong with that. So I called him up and said, I just need to confirm the spelling of your last name. And I spelled it and he said, yes. And I said, thank you very much. I started hanging up the phone and I heard this voice yelling, wait. <laughs> and he asked me out on a date. Very um, cool. And I was so shocked that I said, yes. And I hung up and I thought, do I want to go out with? Anyway, we went out and we've been married 32 years. <laughs> well done, well done. All that yeah. because of her name. So you you have uh, you have a, a recent book out. The book is called. You got and you're, I know you're working on new books, but you have a new. The book is called High Stakes Leadership. Yes. Um, let's face it. There are you know you and I both know there are a heck of a lot of uh, leadership books out there. Yes. What do you think makes this book stand apart from the rest? Well, a couple things. One is that I'm focused on things that are of vital importance in companies. I'm not a big fan of um, flavor of the month sort of tactical things. Um, you know, label, give something a new label and pretend like you just, you know, discovered the sun. That's kind of silly. Um, you're, you're right. There are a lot of leadership books out there. And one of the reasons there are so many is that it's so important. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of leaders that have a lot of books. And I say if you have 100 leadership books and you learn one thing from half of them, mm -hmm. good. 
good. Yeah. I, again, it's not wasted. No. Uh, my book is really focused on high stakes issues in crisis. And my book is different in part because it's not a technical book. And it does not, I do not focus on an industry. And that's because my practice does not focus on an industry. Leadership is a process and um, an expression of who people are. It's not, uh, you know, people will say to me, um, I, for example, I started working with a large hospital system recently. And one of the first questions was, well, what, what medical, you know, institutions have you worked with? And I said, well, I'm, you know, the Medical College of Georgia, the Center for Disease Control. I rattled off a few and I said, but that's not really what's important. I said, I'm not here to work on medical issues or to do research with you. We're going to make your leadership sing. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they said, oh, oh. You know, physicians will say to me, I don't see how you can help us. You're not an MD. What they really want to say is you're not a real doctor, right? Mm -hmm. And say, well, oh, that's okay. I'm not here to work on medical problems. <laughs> they go, oh, okay. Um, so my there is a... I yeah, mean, I, I know this too. There is often a um, an intellectual bias. I remember yeah. years ago I was working with a lady, um, and, and I said, "I really need you to come in, bring your your partner in, because I'm there's things going on with you that I I think are related to your relationship." And I everybody I work with CEOs and matter what they are. If you're married, I want to meet your partner because I want because they're going to tell me shit you're not going to tell me. So let's have that combo. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to confirm things about you that they've been telling you for thirty years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this is going to make them very happy. Yeah. Because they're going to say, "I've been telling you that for years." That's right. They do, and then exactly. you know you're dead right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, and, and she said, oh, he won't come in. And I said, why not? She said, he's a dentist. <laughs> and I said. And? And? Yeah. And she said, well, he's very intelligent and he's very bright and he won't come in because he's a dentist. And I said, I'm not asking him to come in for a root canal. I'm not asking him to come in and get, I'm not offering to teach him how to do root canals. Right, right. And it's like right. you've equated one set of intelligence with another and it's completely different. And I think right. that this is what happens in leadership very often. Uh, you know, and you, you I'm sure you yes. deal with it. They, you know, I'm this CEO, we, I run a half billion dollar organization. I'm masterful at making that happen. Yeah, but nobody in likes you. Nobody really wants to follow you. And everybody's <laughs> running away to the next, next organization to get the hell away from you as a human being. That, yeah. That, well, th there's that, and that will cause a crisis, right? Because right. your talent is being drained. Exactly. But the other thing that causes a crisis that's parallel to what you're saying is that uh, the success trap. I'm the CEO of a you know fifty billion dollar company, and when I took over, we were thirty five billion, and you know our share prices da 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 da, and. This is a this is a cognitive trap people get in. They think what I did back here will work in any circumstance. It's called overgeneralizing. You know this. Yeah. Um, overgeneralizing. So it's it's like when we're when we're children and we're learning to speak, we overgeneralize the rules of grammar. And mm. so you say um, you hear a child say, "I goad." Mm -hmm. meaning I went somewhere in the past, but they haven't learned yet. They're right. overgeneralizing. Yeah. And we adults think we're too smart for that, but we are not. Mm -hmm. Because our brains, our cognition, and our perception is still human, and the human mind is, and brain are not infallible. Mm -hmm. A double negative, but... So, yeah, absolutely. And I see this. In fact, the greatest cause of failure in M&A is overconfidence. So, so I mean, let's go to M and A because that's yeah. that's where you tend to sort of play that 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 world, right? I like to. I really like it. I'm a little masochistic, I guess. <laughs> so, t tell us about uh, why you fit so well with M and A. Mergers and acquisitions to... seems like you know yeah. transitory and and maybe kind of even irritating, and that people would be focused <laughs> on on the money. And, and, the, and yeah. that, rather yeah. than the leadership, leadership would be kind of secondary. That's why I'm asking you. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the problem. That's exactly the problem. It's, you know, everybody's got their deal book and their spreadsheets and, and that's all great. I mean, you, if you don't have a good strategy and you don't have a good deal, you know, if you're going to go in and pay way too much money, I probably can't help you. <laughs> I can't save you from that stupid decision. Um, but once you do a lot of those technical things right, mm -hmm. you're not done. And so one of the best um, examples of, of a good deal was when um, the Bankieser company, which was uh, it was actually a German or Austrian company, and they were based in Amsterdam at the time, and they merged with uh, Reckon and Coleman, which was based in Windsor, um, in England, and they're the guys that make Lysol. Mm -hmm. Reckon and Coleman make Lysol, Mankeeser made uh, the jet dry that you stick in your dishwasher, you know, unless you want spotty glasses, I guess. <laughs> That's the story. <laughs> and they came together under the leadership of a talented CEO, Bart Becht, who'd been leading Mankeeser, and he put tremendous resource and investment um, against the need to select the right leaders as defined, right leaders as defined by their strategy and the culture they wanted to build. And I was very lucky to be involved in that. In fact, I remember sitting next to Bart in a meeting and he was speaking and he didn't talk a lot, which I took note of. And I remember he was saying something and I thought, you need to pay attention because this guy is good. Mm -hmm. Their share price doubled in two years. So that was my very first deal that I worked on. That was back in like 2000 or something. And um, I find that what makes me good at M&A is that I like to, um, I th I'm a systemic thinker and I like to get data from different uh, different sources. And I'm, uh, I love to mine the experience and uh, just the context of something for data. So for example, a client recently um, this hospital that I'm working with, I was walking around, I got lost, no surprise, you know, it's a real snaky place. And I noticed, um, that, uh, some of the facilities were very poorly maintained. Mm -hmm. And I went back to the CEO and said, you know, you're trying to take the organization here and you're talking about exciting things like bioengineering and that's great, but your facilities are uh, not only dated, but um, they're not in good condition. And so I like, I like doing that. And mm -hmm. I like things that are a little messy and complicated. Um, and so that's, and I learned that when I was working in a hospital as a clinician. And I was working in uh, um, what we call consult liaison. So the physicians would send us referrals and say, oh, you know, we've got this this person who's in serious shape and the family's freaking out, come help. And you had to go in, talk to as many people as you could, create an assessment, a diagnosis and a plan in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was the most fun I'd had in years. Now my colleagues, my five colleagues who were also doing their residency at the same time thought I was nuts. Sure. But I took note of that and I thought, okay, this is a, this is something I love doing the faculty think I'm really good at it. So when I graduated, they told me, you should be a consultant. You're a born consultant. <laughs> so I became a consultant, but not the way they meant. Fascinating. <laughs> I thought I'd be wearing a long white lab coat. I was like, nah, I don't nah, think Not so, so much. Not so, so much. Yeah. I, I, I know we both have this experience. I don't want to hear it from, from what it's like for you because – we both know, everybody knows, there is logic and then there's yeah. emotion. Right. And those two things are different. Um, in my experience, people like to uh, rationalize, and I break that word up to say rational lies, to make yeah. rational lies of their emotion. Uh, yeah. Rather than owning the emotion, it's fine. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of emotion, but own it for what it is. Yeah. But talk to us a little bit about the work you do and the stuff that you've outlined in the book around the distinction between the two and making sure that you're not going down the road of chaos by separating those two. Right, right. Um, so a lot of times it's a process of talking to an executive or a group of executives about 
things like um, their assumptions. Mm -hmm. Without, you know, without making accusations, I don't know what their assumptions are, but I do know that there are predictable decision traps in all of our lives and in all of our minds, um, and they're invisible. Mm -hmm. Even though I know about them, when I'm in the middle of one, I'm completely blind to it. Yes. You know, I, uh, one of the things that I do is um, I'll get very attached to the idea of acquiring something, and then I get tunnel vision. And that's a very human thing. But even though I know this, you know. So let's take for an example uh, a company that wants to acquire another company, and they get all in a froth about it. And the investment bankers are, you know, urging them on, uh, you know, the street maybe gets wind of it and something doesn't go quite right. And the company that has agreed to negotiate with them about being acquired, uh, wants more money. Right. And you see this happen, right? Absolutely. So, so, and you watch Jim Cramer and, you know, uh, Dave Farber and these guys on CNBC and they're going, what are they, what, wait a minute, you know, and they're looking at book value and all kinds of, of metrics. What's happening is a very human thing. And that is, we said we were going to do it. People know we were going to do it. And by damn, we, we got to do this. Right. Even past the point of it being uh, rational. So I've seen a lot of deals that, um, that start out badly because there's just been so much, um, it's like courting. In fact, yeah. I wrote an article called uh, um, "Invisible Dis Decision Traps in Mergers and or Sync Mergers and Marriages." It's the same process. Of course, it is. Doubt about each other. You make contact. You have some nice dinners. Everybody's on their best behavior. You talk about your company. Blah 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 blah. And then, and then you get committed. Not not even necessarily in a way that other people know. You get psychologically committed. Exactly. Then, man, you will rationalize <laughs> all the stuff that you see that sort of bothers you. But, you know, and then you get married and six months later you go, did you, you've thrown your dirty socks on the floor, you know, or the business equivalent, mm -hmm. of, which happens all the time. All and it's why deals fail so frequently. So that's one reason, um, you know, the overconfidence factor, I said, is the number one cause of, of deals failing and the overconfidence is more prominent when you're talking about people issues than the analytics because the financial analytics are what they are the spreadsheet says what it says so so is, is the all is the overconfidence in that we got that we can turn this around that we can take this and do amazing things with it yes even though the numbers don't match um, or is it yeah, something else some, altogether? Yeah, sometimes it could be exactly that. So the number, the numbers are bad because those people that are running it now, mm -hmm. they're not us. Right. You know, we, you know, we can make this uh, work. But let's say the numbers are good, and uh, and you say, okay, the numbers are good. So the management team must be hunky dory. So we're just gonna, you know, keep them and let. And you right. don't take a look at at them in a serious way, which is what Bart did in the Wreck of Ben Kieser deal. Uh, my colleagues and I actually evaluated something like 300 and something, the top three layers of leadership in that company were evaluated by us and by the internal people. And then we came together and they made some very hard decisions. Some of them were very hard, but it, it turned out really well. Yeah, it, it's... I mean, I, I, I totally get this whole thing around this overconfidence thing and the, the need to bolster my opinion and wanting to hold to that, uh, yeah. even if it's completely loony. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, you and I know this because we both got the psychology background, but I, I see it. I mean, I've talked a lot about it in couples work and, and saying that you think about you date somebody and you, 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 all I, I've, I said for years, every warning sign you'll ever have of every problem you'll ever have in any relationship is there in the first three dates. It, I would it, go further. I say, I'll go further and say it's there in the first 20 minutes, but I'll give you a little bit of a stretch and say in the first three dates. 
Yeah. Every problem you'll ever have is shows up there. You're going to be married for 30 years. That problem is going to show up that was there, but you chose to ignore it because of nice tits, nice eyes, nice ass. Whatever it was you decided was nice. Nice car. Nice car. You know, if, yeah. if that's you know, a beautiful suit, you know, right. or, you know he's well-dressed, you know. the Free me. Yeah. Whatever <laughs> it is, and we use these things to sort of, you know, spread it over all the stuff, but the stuff will surface again. And and it's and this is the stuff we do when we when we're working on culture with a company. We right. say, you know, let us let's take a look at your hiring process. And right. they go through and they go, oh my, you know, I right. should I kill right. myself now? Give me a spoon. It'll take a while, you know. Just get paid in advance. Yeah, because <laughs> it's like this is painful yeah. because you're focused on skills which are fine but that you can't just focus on that you've got to look at these people have to interact with each other and if they don't if you don't pay attention to the human side of what's going on here that you know one of the things i say when i go into a company is if you're going to bring me in to work with your executive board i guarantee at least one person's gone i just guarantee you that i know that and they go well how do you know that well i hope i'm wrong but I haven't been so far. Yeah. Either they go or we go, and it's fine either yeah. way, but, you know, yeah. that's how it is. Yeah. And they go, well, why do you say that? And I said, because the person who you're probably going to have to get rid of is probably the diva. And they go, what do you mean? Somebody who performs super high, does really well, but is pissing in everybody's conflicts, is actually upsetting everybody else, and everybody else is underperforming, because you butter up to this person right. who is performing really well. So they get this overconfidence. They feel like they can get away with shit because their paychecks are good or because they hit the bottom line well. And they're poisoning your culture. Right. And, and, it's, and, and you are actually imbuing them with false confidence. Right. And so, they think they can get away with it because the evidence says that that's the truth. Well, and the problem is that it becomes a cultural truth because now everybody else goes, well, if I perform at that level, I can get away with stuff right? as well. So you've got a poisonous culture. Right. And it, it, it removes all the credibility from the top leader who says things like people are our most important asset. No, they're not actually for most, for in most companies, that's not true. And, and sometimes it shouldn't be true. Are people important? Yes, of course. Uh, but this this sort of uh, these bromides that people say uh, that are ca- contradicted by the behavior. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, the signs are there early on. Yes. And that is it's so true. Um, I can't I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but uh, I can't remember who said this. But I learned it from Rock Pereira, who's a, an adjunct professor at Wharton. And, and a fabulous teacher. I've seen him do workshops, and, and this is me watching Rock. I mean, he's, real, he's really, really good. And he talks about um, strategy and looking, looking as far out as you can go for faint signals and listening for faint signals. And he takes people in these workshops through this process. It's the same thing with people. So the little thing that makes you go, hmm, you know, on your first date over time, that little pebble and another one and another one, pretty soon it's a giant speed bump and now you're really annoyed because this person, but they're just doing what they did. They're being, <laughs> so one of my, uh, one of my friends who's a, a partner in an accounting firm says, we hire people for what they know and we fire them for who they are. Mm-hmm. And I just said, a more brilliant statement has never been uttered. It's absolutely true. Yeah, thanks, Chip, for that one. That was really good. Well, I think that when you when we're assessing people, we have to look at okay, there are things here, and and when we look at those, we say, can I live with this irritant? Because no, human beings are flawed. Right. Right. So that's the bottom line. So human right. beings are flawed. So can I live with this? Right. Right. And, and still get my outcome. Right. And actually enjoy the rest. Because, listen, you've been married for 150 years. I've been married for, for 125 years. Right? <laughs> We've been married a long time. And right. I know I irritate my wife. And I know yeah. there are things that irritate me about her. But she yeah. is the most precious human being to me on the planet. 
I yeah. love her more than the day I married her. She's the best decision of my life. It doesn't yeah. mean nothing bothers me. That's so sweet. It's yeah, true. Exactly. It doesn't mean nothing bothers me. And it doesn't mean there's things I, don't, that I do that don't bother her. But everything else is worth it. Yeah. And, and, and I can tell you there have been, you know, there were other women before I met my wife who I was in love with, who were delicious in all kinds of ways. But I knew that I couldn't live with that little thing. And my friends would say, it's a little thing. And I'd go, yeah, that little thing will become a boulder. That exactly. little pit of sand in my shoe will be a boulder in my yeah. shoe over time. Yeah. And it's no different in leadership. And, and I think that this is where we miss out. And this is where we, we don't pay attention. And this is what, what actually creates the chaos that you're talking about. Yes. It does. And it destroys the credibility of leaders. So the, the thing that drives me wild is when a leader says to me, you know, I want to talk to you about George. I'll say, OK, well, what's what's up with George? Well, George is um, George has a woman working for him, Sally, and she's a non-performer and he's got to deal with it. And I say, great. What have you thought of doing? Oh, well, I talked to George. OK. And what is George doing? Well, he talked to Sally. Well, maybe I should have made Sally the boss in this example, but that's all right. We, we get the point. And I say, well, what do you expect to happen? Well, well I th it'll get better. I'm sure it'll get better. And I, say, and I will say to them, a conversation is an insufficient intervention. Mm -hmm. But if you want to wait and see what happens, fine. Let's, let's revisit this in, in, in a month or two. Well, what do you think happens? Nothing. Of course, nothing. nothing. It's not sufficient to say to someone, you know, uh, you show up for every meeting 20 minutes late. It's disrespectful and rude. And then they, they keep doing it. You know, you've got to have something more, uh, more powerful to have happen and, and not get them a coach. Because the problem is the, the boss, as you say, the manager, is not – dealing with this issue. Right. And so then the leader stands up and talks about performance and meritocracy and everybody's sitting there texting their friend, right? They pick up their phone and they go, boy, this is a bunch of BS in this meeting, right? right? And so when a leader pays, ignores the little things, like you were saying, the small things that you, that you could have noticed early on and they pile up and they pile up pretty soon, they don't have the credibility to lead Who's going to follow them if everybody's busy rolling their eyes and going, well, you know, the, we'll just wait for the next guy. So that brings us to something that I, I, I know that you and I have in common, um, which is this, the focus on accountability. Um, and that that word is really thrown around and it yeah. pisses me off yeah. that it's thrown around. It's yeah. thrown around. Because people will, first of all, they'll say, you know, oh, yes, I, I did that. I'm accountable for that. And I, that makes my head want to explode. What does that mean? You're accountable for that. Does that mean you're actually going to do something? Or you just, is that your way of just saying, yeah, yeah. I screwed up and I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. So I'm accountable. Yeah, not enough. So, but the key around it for me is on the other side, which is, I, I often say that it's, the, the problem is always with the leader. I always bring it back to a leadership problem. Yeah. And yeah. that is this. What are the boundaries? If I don't, if, if, if your employee does not know the boundary, not, not, not the hard line, you're going to get fired, but the boundary, then why would they be accountable? You know, it's like saying to your kid, you know, be home from school, or come home after you've been out with your friends, but be home by eight. And they come home at 10 after eight, and you go, eh, it's only 10 after then what you're telling them that there is no real boundary. And then eventually it becomes nine o'clock and you're royally pissed off and you're exploding. And the kid's like, I don't know what the problem is. I'm only 10 minutes later than last night. So, and I see that with leadership. Do you but see that? The first 10 minutes, right. right? You already gave it to them. So now they're not really 20 minutes late. It's only 10 more than the last exactly. time. And, and, so and that's what I see in leadership is that there's this lack of, um, accountability by clear boundaries. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm talking about whether that's a CEO to the C-suite or whether that's a C-suite to the, to, to the VPs or whether it's VPs to managers or whatever it might be. Yeah. 
Yeah. How do we get them to to own that a little more? How do, how do you, you know, if you were brought in and you were seeing that, what would you be, how would you be guiding those leaders? Well, so I have a recent example. Fabulous. <laughs> of this uh, CEO who's been bitching um, about someone on his team uh, for a long time. Um, and everybody around knows that this person is a problem. And the way I deal with it is I sit in their office and I lean forward and I say in a very slow and serious voice, the problem is now you. You have, it started out that John was the problem, but now the problem is you because you're wavering on taking appropriate action because now you're sending the message to the rest of your team that what John is doing is acceptable, but you're trying to uh, grow this firm. This is a private uh, company. Mm -hmm. You're trying to grow this firm by X dollars in revenue and X number of people and X profit by 2021. That is exactly the kind of thing that's going to prevent you from doing that it's also going to prevent you from attracting people who are going to help you get there and who are going to enjoy working hard and doing what's necessary. And you're, you're, you're not only undermining yourself, you're taking the joy and the satisfaction away from other people in achievement because people want to achieve almost more than they want to be paid. If you pay somebody enough, Paying them more won't get you more. No. But giving them an opportunity to achieve and learn and grow, that will do it. Absolutely. And if you rob people of that, I mean, I always say to people, you cannot tr stop trying to motivate people. Knock it off. You can't do it. But you can kill it. <laughs> you yeah. can hire people who are motivated and then just squash them. Yeah, that's true. So I, I make it very personal for the leader. And um and, and I, I just call it like I see it. You know, if I hear, if, if the EVPs are in my ear saying, when's he going to deal with that jackass, you know? So that's an example, that's an example of observational data. Absolutely. I, I, I fully agree with you. I know exactly what you're talking about. Now, exactly. now you, you know, like I said, you're the author of this, this great book, um, you, you've worked with some very high-powered organizations. Uh, your book is endorsed by some pretty amazing individuals. You're highly recognized in what it is you do. You've written for very powerful outlets. You know, so all these things about you. What don't most people know about Constance? Um, that I'm really silly. <laughs> I'm, I'm a very silly person. I'm an easy laugh. Um, my husband is the king of puns and he has been making me laugh for 35 years because we knew each other two years before we got married. And he, he makes these stupid jokes and I laugh and I go, that was stupid. And he goes, you laughed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, uh, Mike Myers says to be silly is to be in a state of grace. Hmm. And I think it's so true. And I, I think that what keeps people from, um, sort of, leaning into, I hate that phrase. I don't know why it came out of my mouth, but, but being silly and being, um, unguarded sometimes is that it makes us feel vulnerable. You know, we might get criticized. I've certainly been criticized. My seventh grade boyfriend broke up with me cause I was too silly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I went out on a date with my, when I met my wife, it was through a blind date and somebody yeah. introduced us. And I said, well, what, the person who said, well, why didn't you date her? And he said, she, she laughed too loud. I said, good, give me her number. She laughed too loud. Yeah, same thing, right? So, you know, it's that, it's her be prim, be proper, display. be the right. Yeah, how dare her display unbridled joy. So I'm the person, you know, I saw the, the play um, come from away in New York a couple weeks ago. I'm the person who laughs loudly who responds to what's happening on stage. And I used to be very embarrassed about that. And I'd try to be a little more buttoned up and serious. And, you know, I was a therapist. I can sit in a room with someone for 50 minutes, which is the therapy hour, as you would know. Yeah. 
and not say much at all and have a pretty, um, you know, blank face, be a non-anxious presence and all that. When it's called for in a boardroom, I'm certainly not silly. My clients are not there to be silly. Uh, but in my private life, um, I'm silly. And the other thing people, well, people, if they've read my bio, they know this. I'm a boxing fan. <laughs> As in doing or watching? Oh, no, watching. Um, I have uh, in my living room a seven foot by three foot original portrait of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I mean, serious. And and he was the reason I got interested in boxing because he and Howard Cosell used to be on TV and they would argue. And it was only later that someone said that relationship and Ali's behavior brought boxing back into popularity. Absolutely. And I, thought, I didn't know that. So I thought, wow, you know, it, it, it really it really did. Yeah, yeah. That relationship changed changed the way the world saw boxing. Yes. You know, it was it, very interesting. It, and particularly at that time between an older white man and an yes. African-American boxer. You know, so yes. there was there was a, so many dynamics that, you know, you and I, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm talking to the choir here, but, you know, yeah. you and I understand this. Like, there were so many dynamics there. Yes. You know, that, that, that they respected each other. Tons of respect, you know. And Muhammad Ali would, you know, lift up it, lift up his toupee and do shit like that and play with him, you know. And, <laughs> and Cosell would talk about taking him out, and it was fun. But yeah. like you said, it, you know, it was, it was. I mean, for me, I think that I see this, and I'm probably sure you do too. That there's so many wonderful leadership metaphors in places we're not looking. Yes. You know, we look at the boardroom. We look yeah. at we look at the, the uh, Zuckerbergs or, or whoever it might be in the billion-dollar category, you know, and, and I think we miss leadership so much. And like you, I see it everywhere. Yeah. I see shitty leadership everywhere, but I also yeah. see fabulous leadership. And, and I'm often in awe of it, you know, when I see really extraordinary leadership and it's, you know, and it might be a, an 11-year-old girl talking to a class and I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yes. And you, you would know because, you know, you have my book and, and I haven't presumably read part of it. And, um, I talk about leaders that people have never heard of, right? but who are fantastic and admirable, or maybe it's someone that was in the news at one point, like the two women that were the first to complete the Ranger program in the United States army. Um, very admirable human beings. And yeah, you see it everywhere if your eyes are open. And if you're a good leader yourself, you want to not only see it, but you want to fan the flames of that. Exactly. And and say, this is somebody that can move really far, really fast. And I would say that, that when I see that, I, I literally, if you want to choke me up about my work, what and Mark Levy did this to me one day. He said, "Why do you do what you do? You know, what do you believe in?" And I just, I just welled up, and I said, "I believe in the potential of people. I believe that people can grow and learn, and that they want to. And when I help a leader move on their individual leadership trajectory and do well and feel proud of that accomplishment, I think." That's the cause of my life. That's what I'm doing here. That I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's really, really, really fun. And I have some great examples in the book of people I've worked with who I was able to write about with their permission, of course. And then a lot of people that I've never met who I just admire. Uh, but no comments. You know, no, you know, Steve Jobs. Everybody talks about Steve Jobs. He built a great company. I use their products. I love them. But he was a comment. Let's not let's not all walk in those footsteps. Yeah, and that's what I was just going to say to you. That's what I actually liked in the book is that you you shared stories of leaders who are unknown. Yeah. Right. Um, why do you think it's really important? Because because we we're, we're all pulled to star power. I get that. But, sure. But why do you think it's important that people read about, discover about these leaders whose names? most people would never recognize because I believe that people can grow in their leadership ability, that courage, judgment, and fortitude can be 
learned and strengthened and taught and reinforced and that leadership is not for people that are special, you know, that anybody uh, over the course of our lives, we will find ourselves in positions where people look to us for leadership. It may be temporary. Uh, the stakes may be low, but I think it's important for us to all see. I mean, look at these kids, kids, these young adults Much. that in, at the high school in Florida yeah. knew exactly where I was going. Look at what they're doing. They are putting themselves out there. They are articulate, whether you agree with them or not. They are young people, young adults that you're seeing mature in front of your eyes. They were, they did not raise their hands and say, please, could we have this crappy opportunity and have some of our friends shot? Um, but they, they've done it. And yeah. I, I think that human beings are capable of greatness. Well, you and I certainly agree on that. I definitely believe that with every fiber of my being. I, I, as one of my, was one of my contentions with psychology training that I got is I, I was irritated by the idea that people were broken. I believe that people are born whole, complete, yeah. and miraculous. And we've yeah. just forgotten and had a pile of shit piled on top of us to help us forget. And yeah. our job, you and I, you know, because in many ways, I've often said many ways, I'm still a therapist. You know, <laughs> of course, nobody, nobody would use that word, right? And, no. and I wouldn't use that word because it's not... But, but I'm not a therapist in the way that I was trained. And that's why I say it, right? Right. Because that training was something missing in you. And what right. I say is that my job is not, in, that's therapeutically, is to not fix you, but to grind off the crack that's on top of your magnificence. Yeah. And, yes. and, and, and sometimes to say to somebody, okay, you have this weakness. So what? Yeah. Here's. Who cares? I'm I'm not good with details. Uh, that probably doesn't shock you, <laughs> given our recent exchange. But I'm not good with details, and I've had bosses in the past that have tried to, you know, make me be better at my expense reports or whatever. And now that I'm my own boss, I refuse to torment myself with that weakness. I have outsourced the things that I'm not good at. I let other people that are good at it do those things and off we go. It's just not worth me feeling bad about myself um, over that. No, yeah. it just sucks the life out of you. Oh, That's oh it's, ter too. it's terrible. Now, if I'm cooking, details matter. So <laughs> do pay attention to measurements if I'm baking because it's important. It's all, see, it's chemistry. So we're back to the chem, we're back to where we started. But you know, it's very interesting. And I'll tell you, just as a, as a human psychology piece here, and I want we got to finish up, but I just want to say this. Yeah. That, um, one of the things I love and hate about human beings, and that includes myself, is <laughs> that we are wonderful contradictions. Oh, My yeah. wife will often say to me, you are the most patient man I've ever met. I watch you working with your clients and you in, like you, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you, and we work side by side, mm -hmm. right? And she'll because she's my business partner and co-facilitator. And then you know I'm standing behind somebody. I'm watching her walk through a grocery store, and somebody just stops in the middle of the aisle, ah. and my head wants to explode, right? Ah. And and she and she'll just say, "Oh my Stop. god, you're so impatient." Yeah. And, and, and this is what I I think that we mistaken human beings is that we we like to say i'm this no you're not you're right. that in certain situations right. so you just said i'm not a details person yes you are in a certain situation and yes. you're not in everything else and that's okay and that's okay yeah that's okay uh, my yes. my wife says you know people will say i meet people i met I, who sat in my office and i worked one-on-one -on -one with them 15 years ago they walk in and i say how's this going and they go oh my god you remember that i go yeah they go, how do you remember that? I can tell you the dilation of your pupils and how fast your heart was beating as we had the conversation and that you were wearing a blue top. And they go, oh, my God. But I said, but don't worry. The grocery store is literally across the street from where I live. And I have to take my cell phone because when I get there, I've got to phone my wife and say, why am I here? <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. And I think those of us that are, are wired to work with people a lot, 
we naturally recall things about people. You know, how's your Aunt Sally that was in the hospital? My husband says I have um, just astonishing facial recognition software, and I have voice recognition software. If I see you in the Atlanta airport two years from now in profile at 100 yards, I will know it's you. (laughs) (laughs) I will look forward to that. It's a little scary. It's it's a little. People are like freaked out by it. But um, I, I'm so interested in human. Be- I'm interested in living things too. I mean, in graduate school, I took a course in animal behavior, and we got to work with bonobo chimpanzees uh, that Georgia State University had for language research. And that, was, that was just such great fun. So I like to. I like to. I guess I like to be with things that are growing and changing. That's yeah. probably what I like to do. And leaders need to grow and change, and the ones that don't are doomed. Ta-da! <laughs> that's, that's a very ta-da moment. So yeah. listen, Constance, I have absolutely loved this conversation. I've it's enjoyed it so much, and thank you so much for all the wonderful gems that you've shared. Before we close up, please tell our viewers and our listeners where they can find out more about you and all your wonderful resources. Well, they can uh, go online. They can put my name into Google, Constance Derricks, D-I-E-R-I-C-K-X. Don't worry if you can't spell it. If you start, it'll probably populate because I am the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have a website that has uh, articles and videos and all sorts of things that people can access completely free. Um, And I have a newsletter, and I write for Forbes and Chief Executive Magazine. Uh, which is great fun. And my recent article in uh, Forbes was Chick-fil-A's most valuable recipe is not about chicken. (laughs) And over 18,000 people have viewed it. I called the editor and I said, why? And she said, I have no idea. (laughs) That's very cool. People like chicken or something. I I have no idea. Chick-fil-A is a very popular brand, but also their leadership is pretty awesome with Mark Miller. Yeah, their their leadership is very good. And if you go in a Chick-fil-A in Atlanta, Georgia, and a Chick-fil-A in South Florida, uh, you're very likely going to be served by polite, uh, well-groomed young folks, usually, but not always, um, who say you're welcome instead of no problem. And the place is clean. And, and the food is, you know, it's fast food, but it's good. And I have a Chick-fil-A cup sitting right over there. You can't see it. But... <laughs> I, I can honestly say I've never had Chick-fil-A. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's it's a great – it's a very well-run company, and uh, McDonald's is trying to copy their chicken sandwich right now. That's very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so they can research you and find you by looking up your name, and, is, and your name is your website too. Um, my, my website is cdconsultinggroup.com. cdconsultinggroup.com. We will post that in the show notes. Again, I want to thank you for being with us. It's been awesome, wonderful. Hope you'll stay with us to the end. And I, I encourage you, dear listener, dear viewer, to make sure that you go and research Constance and find out all the great resources. Look up her articles in Forbes and all the other different places. This is a woman who has a wealth of, a wealth of knowledge. Check out her books and new books coming very soon too. So yes. there's more, more wonderful stuff to come. Again, thank you, Constance. It's been a pleasure. And for you, dear listener, remember that the research consistently shows that one of the biggest challenges facing the most successful companies is somewhat counterintuitive in that these fast-growing companies often hit a point where they realize they're spending a fortune attracting, training, and developing talent, only to have them leave them at an alarming rate. If you're sick of investing in your training and development of your talent, only have them leave you before you get your ROI, then come talk to us at fullmontyleadership.com where we provide you with the essential leadership skills to rekindle rekindle, and amplify the hidden loyalty assets inside of your organization by tapping into purpose. FullMontyLeadership.com, providing you with the concrete soft skills to get you and your organization to the top and keep you there. Why? Because you can't outsource authenticity. And remember also stop by the matrix, matrix.fullmontyleadership.com. You don't need the triple W's, just matrix.fullmontyleadership.com and get your authentic leadership matrix assessment tool. You can assess yourself in the five areas of leadership and just find out where your real strengths are and how to tap into them. And again, remember to go to uh, Alexa or Google Play and just say Play Dog Baron Podcast. Thank you for sharing the show with everybody you know. Till next time, 
Stay curious, my friend. Stay curious about the chaos that you might be creating by not holding people accountable because your leadership will depend on how they see what it is you're doing. Remember, you are the model for leadership. If you don't step up, don't expect them to. I'm Dove Barron. I'm here to assist you tapping into your deep greatness by reaching that next level of clarity, focus, purpose, and profit in your business, your life, and your leadership, and your impact. And I am out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.